Welcome to episode 33 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This one is a pop-up episode inspired by today's Supreme Court decision striking down affirmative action. To that end, I'm going to talk without further ado to Ethan Blevins from the Pacific Legal Foundation about that case. And then I'm going to do a brief Q&A about something completely unrelated, the choir and organ at my school in Cambridge, England. But first, this week's episode is sponsored by CEI, specifically by the Free the People podcast, Health, Wealth and Happiness, Three Goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we all agree, freedom is contagious. So check out the Free the Economy podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org forward slash free the economy. My guest today is Ethan Blevins, a legal fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Welcome, Ethan, to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so bottom line, today by six to three, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action on the grounds that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The majority opinion was written by John Roberts, and there were concurrences from Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, and then there were dissents from Sonia Sotomayor and Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Now, this is a topic, affirmative action, that has come up over and over and over again before the court since the late 1970s. And yet, until today, the court never quite seemed able or willing to dispense with it. Well, today it did. Why? Why did it take this long. And affirmative action is really unpopular. It's even unpopular among Democrats. So it's not as if this was fear of the voters. Why did it take this long to get this decision? It's a good question. I I think one reason is that something that infects, unfortunately, a lot of 
constitutional doctrines, which is a notion of judicial deference, um, that courts should be deferring to other bodies who they deem as experts. This was what justified, frankly, segregationist policies like those upheld in Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a case about separating train cars by race. In that case, the Supreme Court said, you know what, we're going to defer to the good faith uh, uh, of the um, of the defendants in this case and say, you know, their, their, their claim that this supports the public welfare is true. And that's really what happened here, too. So the 2003 case uh, that said, yeah, we're going to be okay with affirmative action at universities relied on this deference idea and said, you know, we're going to use that same good faith language and said, we're going to presume the good faith of universities, that they're not going to abuse this, that they're going to, that they have a legitimate, uh, valuable reason for discriminating. And that notion of deference runs through so many um, constitutional doctrines, including this one, I think the court now has enough of a majority to see that those kinds of deference doctrines really undermine individual liberty. And I've been willing now to take that step. Clarence Thomas was absolutely scathing on this front as he has been in the past. He said there is no need to defer to experts who tell you that racial discrimination is good for people. And he said, and this drove people crazy 10 years ago in a similar case, that this was what segregationists said. And there's a line in his concurrence that I wrote down. He says that universities' self-proclaimed righteousness does not afford them license to discriminate on the basis of race. In fact, it is an error for a court to defer to the views of an alleged discriminator while assessing claims of racial discrimination. And you know what interested me about that, Ethan? In most contexts... Political progressives and legal progressives would agree with that. If we were dealing here with a claim from a plaintiff who said the Unilever Corporation is racially discriminatory, you wouldn't hear many calls to defer to the wisdom of the Unilever Corporation, and yet we saw three dissents today that said that we should. So why is it that progressive legal figures like this sort of racial discrimination. This has always baffled me as an immigrant. Well, if you look at the dissents here, I think they're a fair representation of the common positions here. They believe in such a thing as benign discrimination. They believe if uh, there's a case being made here that, for example, what Justice Thomas refers to as the second founding, supported the idea of benign discrimination, that there were certain preferences supposedly provided on the basis of race even back then, and that there's a balancing effort that is appropriate. Now, I think Justice Thomas successfully refutes the idea that you know during the uh, late 1860s and so forth, when we adopted the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and, and the 14th Amendment, that there really weren't racial preferences, that there was a colorblind equality that predominated even then, and that that's the core of um, our legal tradition. They are challenging that. They think that 
you know, that we can discriminate when it's benign, when it's good for society. Of course, again, this is the very same things that segregationists of old said. They thought separating schools was was good for the races. Slave owners often made the case that slavery was great for um, black minority. Of course, we've long rejected that. And, and I think that the court rightly and in, in um, case in the K through 12 context about 20 years ago and in this case said, you know, we're, we were wary of elites peddling racial, racial theories as well we should be. And as you say, affirmative action has never po- been popular among the populace. It's always been the elites that have been pushing these theories. And I think the Supreme Court's finally willing to challenge that and no longer defer to them. Yeah, so a good example of the debate that you just described comes with the discussion of the Freedmen's Bureau Act in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And the dissents say, look at the Freedmen's Bureau Act. This gives special treatment to slaves and their families. And they say, well, that's a proxy for race. That's essentially affirmative action. So the originalist case falls. And Thomas says, well, no, because we are dealing there with slaves. It doesn't say blacks. It doesn't draw this distinction based on crude racial characteristics. The distinction he's drawing there is actually an interesting one in that very often when we discuss American history, we do conflate these two things. Obviously, slavery and race are inextricably linked. And after slavery fell, we moved into Jim Crow, the discrimination became explicitly racial. But the US Constitution in its initial form didn't have racial characteristics within it, right? It had a tacit endorsement in many places or acceptance of slavery. So this is, I assume, Thomas's argument that, look, the radical Republicans after the Civil War, they were willing to help out people who had been enslaved, but they were not willing to tolerate explicit racial distinctions. Is that correct? That is correct. And I, I think that we can look at... Look at um, it's messy because of the historical fact that, of course, chattel slavery in the United States was over, overwhelmingly right. racial in, in, in its nature, as you say. Of course, slavery um, in many other civilizations throughout history has not necessarily been uh, been divided along racial lines. I think it is clear that the what they were rejecting was slavery writ large. I don't, I don't think that they were saying, you know, it's, it's all right as long as we're enslaving the right racial groups. And I think, you know, Justice Thomas points out that the Freedmen's Bureau Act also helped um, white refugees in, in various ways. And he does point out, you know, some of the things that there are a few other laws that the dissent cites too, and he says, well, they very well, those laws may very well have survived strict scrutiny, which is the standard that was sort of re-enthroned by the court today, which is to say, you know, there were situations where they were directly remedying a current racist regime that was in place then and, uh, and that they were targeting that specifically and dealing with it. That's very different from saying, you know, we're just going to balance racial proportions so that they match society in general, which is what the universities are doing. Yeah. And also governments violate the law. I, I find this somewhat circular sometimes where you're told, oh, well, look, 30 years after this provision was passed, the government did this. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Alien Sedition Act were passed, you know, only a few years after 
the Constitution. All right, so practically speaking, what's next, do you think? Before this decision came down, I wrote a corner post at National Review suggesting that it might be quite difficult to prevent clandestine resistance. And my suggestion, this was yesterday, was what happens if a university says, all right, we'll take away the box that asks for your race, but starts to encourage aspirants to say, as an immigrant from Ghana, or as a descendant of slaves, or as a lesbian woman on their applications, and essentially use that as a proxy for other forms of affirmative action. But in the case, in John Roberts' majority opinion, he tries to close the door on that and say, you cannot use these characteristics as a proxy. You can take into account people's immutable characteristics if they are tied to some profound life experience or struggle or what you will, but you can't just say, tell us your race in your in your letter. Do you expect to see mass resistance, to coin a phrase, or do you think the court has has successfully closed off that avenue? I think there will be mass resistance. I don't think that that avenue has been closed off adequately. Um, I think we can actually see a little bit of a an experiment, if you will, in California, where affirmative action has long been banned by statute under Proposition 209. And the universities there have used proxies. There's almost no question that's been happening, especially in the hiring context. So, And, the, and their big tool there is the D- diversity statement. So if you want to apply for a job in the University of California system, you're going to have to fill out a diversity statement. What that is, is essentially a way for the university to bypass Proposition 209 and consider your race and your various intersectional identities. There's no question if you look at the the hiring statistics, especially, for example, University of Berkeley, that that they are massively discriminating. What do they ask on this diversity statement? Typically, what they're asking for is for you to show your commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, sort of the common uh, buzzwords, what you've done in the past to further diversity, equity, inclusion, what you'll do as a, as a faculty member to ensure that, you know, all the, the students all are included. So it's, it's somewhat sneaky, but there are rubrics about how these things are judged. But I think really the damning evidence is in the statistics. So, for example, in some university systems, these diversity statements are a threshold inquiry. In other words, if you don't get past that, they're not going to consider the rest of your credentials. Um, and you can, and some um, public records have shown that that threshold inquiry, the um, number of minority applicants surges of, from among those who sur- who sort of survive that threshold inquiry in comparison to the overall applicant pool. So I think uh, there's no question that's being used as a proxy, which I think is essentially what what you're pointing to is, hey, write us an essay about identities, whatever they may be and however you want to phrase them, have, you know, have have formed who you are today or whatever it might be. You know, we've seen other things too, for example, um, in the K through 12 context, schools that have admissions policies have sometimes adopted things like zip code quotas so that they can ensure they're drawing from 
areas with a highly con- high concentration of minorities that they want to have as a student body. So there's proxies are an old concept. I mean, of course, this is goes back to poll taxes and things like that. Um, and so the courts have long said that's not okay. But the problem is we don't really have a good way of sort of as a judicial matter, a test that helps us deal with them adequately. So don't let me take this digression too far, but the diversity statement that you just mentioned struck me as a potential First Amendment problem as well. I think I'm right in saying that California protects political ideology as a class. It's illegal in California to discriminate on the basis of political affiliation or ideology. What if you don't want to make a diversity statement? What if you don't like DEI? What if you believe, as I do, that it is ideological, that you are, in a sense, being asked to acquiesce to a worldview that you may not agree with? Does that present a potential legal challenge? It does. And in fact, Pacific Legal Foundation, my employer recently bought, brought, as far as I know, the first direct First Amendment challenge to these diversity statements in a lawsuit against the University of California, Santa Cruz. And you're right. This is essentially a political litmus test that asks you to buy in or at least express agreement with a political ideology. And we'll see where that goes. I think there. There, there certainly is in the California Labor Code and plenty of other states prohibit these kind of political tests. The big question is going to be whether a court's convinced that it's asking for a specific ideological take. I mean, you could, of course, say, I believe that all people should be treated equal and that sure. there shouldn't be any kind of discrimination. I mean, you're not, there's no question you're not going to get hired or get past the threshold inquiry, or at least you're going to be severely handicapped in your application process if you say that. So I think Part of the difficulty would be proving that they're looking for something specific. The rubrics they rely on do certainly imply that you get dinged if you say, for example, I treat all my students equally regardless of their race or whatever. Um, something that, of course, 30 years ago would have been would have been applauded, but uh, today is not. Yeah, it's so odd hearing people complain about this and essentially say they want racial discrimination and then wait for the applause. So you expect resistance from the colleges along the lines that you just outlined. How about the lower courts? Because after DC versus Heller in 2008, there was this assumption that the huge numbers of gun control laws on the books at the federal and state levels would fall. The court would take case after case after case and that the outcomes would be broadly in line with DC versus Helen. Now, that didn't happen for a long time until uh, Bruin, even though in 2010 the Supreme Court had incorporated the Second Amendment to the states, the Supreme Court pretty much stayed out of gun politics. And what this did, functionally, was allow a whole host of lower courts that didn't agree with the Heller decision or that took advantage of its lack of a standard of review and its vagueness and its compromises to let a bunch of gun control laws stand that people, when Heller was decided, had assumed would be next. Do you see the lower courts slow-walking implementation of today's 
decision or is it much better written, much more difficult to get around? I think, unfortunately, it's more the former. And I think it's largely because the majority opinion today didn't do something it should have done expressly, which is state, we are overruling Gruder versus Bollinger, which is the case where they said, yes, there is a compelling interest in a student body diversity. And yes, it's okay to discriminate to achieve that diversity. Now, the the it, it's somewhat of a classic Roberts opinion because he likes to uh, he likes to take incremental steps. He doesn't want to shake the boat too much, so he didn't overrule Gruder. Now Thomas says I consider Gruder basically overruled, and I think as a practical matter, the way the opinion reads, if you were to read it honestly, yes, it basically does overrule Gruder. The problem is that the the failure of the majority opinion to say Gruder is no longer good law keeps the door open for lower courts to continue to play games, right? Gruder is, oh, well, they, if they meant to overrule Gruder, they would have said so explicitly. So Gruder is still good law. So there's still a diversity interest. As long as universities are considering race-neutral alternatives, we're going to allow this and so forth. So I think that, unfortunately, there's room left for mischief in the way the majority opinion was written. I've seen some people say this afternoon that... The logic of the majority opinion might render many DEI programs that are administered in institutions that receive federal funding unconstitutional. Are you convinced by that? I um, I'm not. I I think that there's going to be that argument made. It should be made. I think a lot of these DEI policies likely are unlawful. Uh, as you say, either under the Civil Rights Act that says if you receive federal funding, you can't discriminate based on race, or if you're a government entity, just directly under the Constitution. But I think that especially courts are going to be very leery of extending it beyond the context in which it was written. And of course, a lot of these DEI policies vary and, and have many different aspects. The DEI ideas itself is a family of many different concepts. So I'm not as convinced. I, I would love it if that were the case, but I think courts really don't will not want to go there. Of the four opinions that were written by the members of the majority, so that's Roberts, Gorsuch, Thomas, and Kavanaugh. Which did you find the most convincing? Uh, probably Thomas's. I mean, I, w- I will say, as everyone is today, I'm quickly digesting a 237-page yeah, opinion, course. which uh, <laughs> likely changes things go on. But again, partly for the reason I just stated, I, I feel like Roberts is is careful. He's tentative. For better or worse, sometimes I think he doesn't go as far as he could. I think Thomas, no question, he's willing to go farther. He also engages more with, I think, a lot of the really pernicious ideas that are pervading elite institutions today. For example, he really tears down very effectively, I think, Justice Jackson's reliance on statistical disparities to demonstrate that we have a systemically racist society that needs to be constantly balanced to fix various disparities. And he, I think, does a very effective job of putting that down. And I think his vision of the second, what he calls a many or starting to call the second founding, the 14th Amendment, is really vital and often forgotten. And so I think his willingness to go back and look at those sources rather than, uh, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, again, taking an incremental approach and relying more on 
just the court's own precedent. It doesn't quite go, it's not as scholarly, doesn't go as far, and I think doesn't really address or dispute a lot of the ideas in the dissent that I see as really pernicious and uh, and harmful to society. All right, let me finish with a question I ask everyone, whatever the topic is, and that is whether you're optimistic or pessimistic. So the public is strongly in favor of this decision. That, of course, does not make the decision correct. The law is the law. The court is there to uphold and interpret the law. It's not there to follow public opinion. But it matters that the public is in favor of this opinion politically, and also because it pushes back against some of the claims that were made in the dissents. For example, in Sotomayor's defense, she makes it seem as if the American public was clamoring for affirmative action and that the court has arrogated itself here and it's standing in the way against a supermajority. And actually, uh, the opposite is true. But as you noted... This has been a project of elites in the United States for a long time. And I haven't seen, even though this seems to be a 75, 25, even 80, 20 issue, any Democrats today, one of the two major parties, come out and say, this is great. I haven't seen any major commentators on the left, come out and say, this is great. The president of the United States, Joe Biden, condemned it. Democratic senators were lining up to condemn it. Barack Obama put out a statement. MSNBC is melting down right now. Do you think that now that this has been overturned, finally, that this will be the end of it in the Supreme Court? Are you hopeful that whatever difficulties there might be in implementation the status quo, which was unsustainable, has finally been knocked over? Or do you worry that if the makeup of the court changed, that we could go back to this in the future, irrespective of public opinion and the scale of this call? Well, I am fundamentally an optimist, and I don't think we're going to backslide. That said, I think that there is a long way to go. I think it's. I have seen some statements that I think are probably a, a little overly optimistic about what's uh, what we're going to see now. I do think we're going to see massive resistance and a lot of litigation, again, because there is uncertainty, I think, coming out of this case um, regarding the uh, viability of the Grutter opinion that originally established the, the, the whole problem to begin with. I, I do think that, you know, we are in, a, 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 we live in a culture of fear right now. And I think that's a lot of the reason why there's this massive silence or just, you know, everybody's scrambling to make sure that, that they're properly condemning this opinion so that they stay in line with um, sort of fear of being denounced. Yes, the fear of being denounced, I think, is very, is very real. But this isn't a legal question, but doesn't that strike you as odd? Because to me, this one is fairly clear-cut rhetorically. I mean, if you are in favor of affirmative action, you are in favor of racial discrimination. And I think progressives at one level intuit this because of the way they talk about it. And Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of the most populous state in the country, put out a statement about an hour ago in which he said that with this decision, the court is trying to take us back to segregation. This is completely crazy. 
Of course it's not. You can't strike down racial discrimination based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and be accused of trying to bring back segregation. So although I agree with you that people are scared, I'm wondering why they're scared, given that it's so easy to stand up and say, you know what, I don't believe that we should discriminate on the basis of race. I believe in in merit. Have the Has one of the two major parties in this country really been co-opted to that degree by unpopular fringe ideology? It's a, <laughs> it's a difficult question. I mean, it's especially ironic from coming from Gavin Newsom, who lives in a state in which he, uh, by statute, universities right. can do this for decades anyway. Does he think he lives in a segregationist state? I mean, it's a bizarre statement coming from him. But I, I do think, you know, ultimately, I'm a big believer in going back to fundamental principles. And I think really the debate here is a deeper debate between collectivism and individualism. Collectivism is always of the view that it's okay to sacrifice the individual on the pyre for the greater good. That's effectively what affirmative action is all about. It's okay that individual victims, whether they be Asian, whether they be white, are sacrificed who would have gotten admitted because we are furthering a greater Good. And so I think that looked at through that lens, I I wonder if a substantial part of the commenters from one political party or one political spectrum here feel like they have to defend that fundamental principle, even if it puts them in the position of, of saying things I think are outright contradictory, like Gavin Newsom's statement that, uh, that even though he lives in a state that's long prohibited this, so I wonder if this is just a defense of the broader fight for a collectivist view of America. All right, I said that was my last question, but I'm going to ask you just one more. You work in this area, you're knee deep in the law every day. Five years ago, did you think that we were as close as we were to bringing affirmative action to an end? Um, No, I didn't, um, because we had uh, the Fisher cases, which it seemed like there really wasn't an appetite for that, and those are relatively recent. We also, in Gruder, the case that established affirmative action, the court said, well, we don't think this will be necessary in 25 years. And that was in 2003, meaning that there was a clock ticking that effectively would mean the Supreme Court thinks this isn't okay 2028 or after. And so... I had always thought, well, the court's not going to want to address this until 2028. Then it's easy for them. Then they can say, well, we said in Gruder it's supposed to be over by now. So it's interesting to me in particular they're willing to take this big step only five years away from the clock they had set in motion themselves. Yeah, and that amused me in Kavanaugh's concurrence because he uses that to say, we're almost there, and to make it seem as if, in a sense, this was precedent, that the court was obliged to (laughs) revisit this, when, of course, Clarence Thomas takes the opposite view and just says all the precedents are nonsense. All right, Ethan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Question. I understand you attended middle school, I don't know if there's a more appropriate British term, at King's College in Cambridge. Since you are also a huge music fan, did you ever enjoy the great organ and choral music at the college? Do you have any particular favourite composers or compositions? I did indeed. And you know... The worst part is that I underappreciated it at the time. 
Our end of term services at King's College Choir School were in King's College Chapel. We got a full compliment from the choir during the service, and then we walked out to the sound of that extraordinary organ. I also got to go sometimes to the Christmas service, Nine Lessons and Carols, and I never realized until I left how lucky I was. The whole school was infused with this musicality. When I was about 10, my classroom for the morning, I think Americans might call it homeroom, was underneath the Chorister Block, a very ugly building with good acoustics that was used by the choir, both the younger and older members, to practice. So you'd be answering your name on the register and talking about soccer or movies or what you will. And from upstairs, you could hear the choir practicing Allegri's Miserere or Oh for the Wings of a Dove or Once in Royal David City. And because of the choir, the general level of musical talent that you heard in the school in general was remarkable and unusual. The end-of-term concerts that we would put on over at West Road Concert Hall were almost, at least by the end, professional level. It was a real musical education. One of my favorite stories from King's that illustrates that is about a kid who had applied to join the choir. He was about my age. I was friends with him. I won't name him, obviously. But as part of his audition, he had to play a piece on his instrument of choice, which in this case was the piano. So he was sitting outside the piano room, waiting for the guy before him, who also played the piano, to finish his audition. And he realized, while he was listening from outside, that he much preferred the piece that the other guy had chosen to his own. A piece that he hadn't actually ever heard before in his life. So, when it came to it, instead of playing his own piece, the one that he'd prepared, he played the piece that the guy before him had played. Now, he didn't play it especially well, because he'd never heard it before, but he was praised to the hilt for his performance nevertheless. Why? Because he'd made exactly the same mistake that the guy before him had made, And in so doing, he demonstrated to the choir master that he had the ability to hear something once and without sheet music, play it back verbatim. If he just happened to have chosen the same piece, that wouldn't have been particularly impressive. But because he quite obviously heard it and then copied it by ear, because he'd screwed up all the same bits in the process and in all the same ways, He charmed them. 
I always loved that story because it shows what an eccentric place King's really was. As for my favorite music, well, my favorite piece of choral music to hear live in King's College Chapel was Zadok the Priest by Handel, followed, I'd say, by Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring by Johann Sebastian Bach. With Zadok the Priest, the sheer power of the organ, combined with the sweetness of the choir, was a treat. And Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring is Bach at his intricate best. And then, I think earlier I mentioned Allegri's Miserere, which in that cavernous chapel just seems to hang in the air forever. And if we're talking about just the organ... It was Vidor's Toccata, which is the most terrifying, imposing, muscular work I know for that instrument. But because Vidor's Toccata was always played when we left the chapel at the end of term, despite its dark tone, it has a really comforting association for me. That sound is, hurrah, no more school. I actually had it played at the end of my wedding in the United States in 2014 for much the same reason as we left the church. That was our exit music. And speaking of exit music, that is all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Ethan Blevins, for talking to me about the affirmative action cases in the Supreme Court. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you next week.